0: The Bane free radio
1: hour. On the podcast, a sale on exigencies and necessaries but not sufficients at the Logic Warehouse leads to empty shelves in the conditionals department. Arcs, mittens, and a pail of frozen air, plus, we continue with the complete. Audiobook serialization of David Weber's uncompromising honor. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Senior Editor Tony Daniel. This week we have part one of a roundtable discussion with Michael Z. Williamson and several of the writers featured in the new anthology Freehold Defiance. This is a collection of short stories set in Michael Z. Williamson's Freehold Universe. This takes place during the climax of the war between the libertarian world of Grania and Earth's underhanded and oleaginous United Nations. Along with MZW, we have Kevin Eikenberry, Christopher and Jamie DeNote, and Philip Wolrab. And we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of David Weber's Honor Harrington series masterpiece, Uncompromising Honor. Now here's the news. Hey, it's the May Rubies and Rust Catherine Asaro ebook sale. To celebrate the mass-market paperback publication of Catherine Asaro's The Vanished Seas, Bane eBooks has major discounts on all eBooks by Catherine Asaro. The Vanished Seas is the third book in Catherine Asaro's excellent science fiction and mystery series featuring the tough Major Bajan, who hails from the deepest of planetary ghettos, but whose investigation into wrongdoings frequently shakes the highest levels of intergalactic empire. During May, get $2 off the eBook of The Vanished Seas. And get $1 off all other Catherine Asaro ebooks, including The Bronze Skies, Undercity. These are part of the Major Bajan series, plus dollar discounts on Sunrise Alley, Diamond Star, and Carnelians. These are available wherever Bain ebooks are distributed. Sale ends May 31st, 2021, at the crack of June. Hey, we have May eARCs for you this month. Now, an eARC is the path coffee takes when dispersed from a squeeze bulb or better yet, a wine skin in microgravity as it interacts with the random air currents and ends up in the astronaut's mouth or his or her nose. It doesn't matter as long as there's caffeine in it. No, no, no. That is not what an eARC is at all. An eARC is an electronic advance reading copy, which is uh, a book that you can get sometimes months in advance, and in this case, about uh, three months in advance. What these are is the copy edited version of the book, the galley version of the book in eARC form. We'll sell it to you early so you can catch up on your favorite series or try new stuff before anybody else gets to it. The E-Arcs for May are Monster Hunter Bloodlines by Larry Korea. Hey, it, this is the new solo Monster Hunter novel from Larry Korea, and you can have it in May. It's coming out in August. Uh, lock and load for hunting monsters. The chaos god Asag is still out there spoiling for another chance to unravel reality. And when Owen Pitt and the MHI team discover that one of Isaac Newton's Wardstones. stones is being auctioned off, they attempt to lay hands on the magical superweapon to fight Asog. But before MHI can get it, the stone is nicked. Now Owen and MHI find themselves in a race against time and monsters to acquire Newton's stone and destroy Asog once and for all. Also out in e-arc form is Saving Proxima by Travis S. Taylor and Les Johnson. The answer lies among the stars. 2072, at the Lunar Farside Radio Observatory, an old-school radio broadcast is detected in an unknown language coming from an impossible source, Proxima Centauri. It seems the Proximans are facing an extinction-level disaster. Now, by traveling speeds required to arrive before disaster strikes at Proxima, humans will learn firsthand the time-dilating effects of Einstein's special relativity. And be forced to ponder ultimate questions. Are we alone in the universe? And what if I return younger than my own children? Finally, out in eArt right now is World Breakers, edited by Tony Daniel, yours truly, and Christopher Rocchio. Brute force, intransigent defiance, adamantine will. These are the hallmarks of the AI tank. Formed from cold still and superpowered computing brains, The gigantic tanks. With the firepower of an entire army have been the decisive factors in interplanetary battle but are humans worthy of the extraordinary instruments of war that they have created stories of world breakers and world makers in the great tradition of keith Lommer's bolos from david weber larry correa Wend spencer and more world breakers edited by tony daniel and christopher Rocchio. saving proxima by travis s taylor and les johnson And Monster Hunter Bloodlines by Larry Correa are now available as eARCs at Bane.com, exclusively at Bane.com. Check them out. This is part one of a two-part roundtable discussing Freehold Defiance. Part two will be available next time on the podcast. Hey, I want to welcome Michael Z Williamson, uh, Jamie and Christopher note and uh, Philip Doc Wolrab. Everybody's got like uh, call signs on this one. Uh, I guess Mike is Mad Mike. I don't know, yep. <laughs> and and I got I'm Tony D because there's another one. Who is <laughs> who is the who is the, uh, the the head of the Jedi and um, uh, my boss uh, and and um, welcome. Thanks for Good
0: to be here. here. Yeah, thanks for having. Me.
1: Well let me talk about each of you a little bit and then we'll get to uh, our reason for gathering. Uh, Jamie Denote is a veteran of the Florida Army and Jamie's the, uh, the, the girl one, right? Yes, thank you. The Florida Army National Guard and US Army Reserves and has mobilized for Operation Noble Eagle, providing air defense for the National Capital Region. She holds a BA in criminal justice from Seattle University. She is currently residing in the Florida Panhandle as a full-time Air Force spouse to husband and usual co-author Chris as a stay-at-home mom to her daughter Remy as well. This is her first solo publication in, uh, in this book. Oh, wait, I think Kevin showed up. Let's admit him. Let's see if he's here. There he is.
0: And we have Eikenberry.
1: Excellent. Excellent. Speaking of, hey, Kevin, can you hear us? I got you. Can you hear me? We can. Sorry about being late. Work no ran a little bit late today. Speaking of Kevin Eikenberry, Kevin Eikenberry is a lifelong space geek and retired Army officer. As an adult, he managed the U.S. Space Camp program and served as a space operations officer before the Space Force was a thing. He is an international best-selling author, award finalist, and a core author in the wildly successful Four Horsemen universe. His 11 novels include uh, a bunch of them, Sleeper Protocols, one of them, and the latest, I think, is Fields of Fire. Is that correct? That's correct. Yep. He's co-written several novels with amazing authors, and he is an actor, a member of uh, Sigma, the science fiction think tank that Chuck Gannon is also part of as well. Um who we got? Left Philip uh, and Mike. Philip Doc Wolrab has spent time in the United States Coast Guard and has served for more than fourteen years in the Virginia Army National Guard, serving as a medic attached to an infantry company. Here in the title, Doc the Hard Way, while serving across two tours in Iraq, he came home and continued his education, earning a master of public health degree. In 2016, he currently works as a DOD contractor designing war games for the United States Air Force. Cool. And with occasional work for the United States uh, State Space Force. He also does game design work for the civilian market um, and uh, editor of the book. And uh, one of the authors is, of course, Michael Z. Williamson. It's also set in his world, his is IP, as they say. Um, is variously an immigrant from the UK and Canada, a retired veteran of the US Army and US Air Force with service in the Middle East, a consultant on disaster preparedness and military matters to private clients, manufacturers, TV and movie productions, and occasional uh, DOD elements. Bladesmith, very good Bladesmith, Award-winning and best-selling editor and author, his hobby of collecting weapons has led him into an arms race, in which he outguns Barbados and Iceland so far, according to this. So far, you, you may be inching up on some other countries as well.
0: Well, you know, we got three more guns this week. So, <laughs> <laughs> um,
1: did you get that, oh, Chris? Was that? Did you cover Chris? Oh, no, I didn't. I didn't. I didn't. Let's skip that, Chrisford, uh Denote has served over 21 years in the United States Air Force and Air National Guard in Pennsylvania and Ohio. He has deployed for Operation Enduring Freedom, Iraqi Freedom, and Noble Eagle. Chris is a graduate of the US Air Force Academy and the USAF Weapons School. He holds an MA in Military History from Norwich University and a Masters in Strategic Studies from the Air War College. Chris also plays saxophone and bass guitar and has performed in several bands. He was born in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, raised in South New Jersey, and currently resides in the Florida Panhandle with his wife sitting next to him and usual co-author Jamie and their daughter Remy. This is his second work of fiction.
0: Um, Other than all the EPRs he's written.
1: Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> is That inc- that doesn't include his dissertation. All right. Let me... No <laughs> just a moment let me um my computer is telling me that i i'm not plugged in let me make sure i'm plugged in over here
0: so i can
2: acknowledge it to work in fiction let's put it that way well i'm sure kevin is uh seen as fair share of oers that are a little exaggerated maybe, perhaps.
1: what does the ODR stand for just a little uh,
2: officer. oh we are officer evaluation we call them OPRs in the Air Force but oh, I with the army, all the army folks around I had to translate yeah.
1: well we are gathered here today out now at booksellers everywhere and doing quite well is Freehold this is the 3D version uh, Freehold Defiance edited by Michael Z. Williamson and um has a lot of uh, a lot of other great co-authors as well. These are the ones that that um, we could attract with the honey of fame, just by <laughs> saying they could be on the podcast, and they they showed up. <laughs> um, so let's uh, Mike, maybe start us off by telling us where this is in your freehold uh, world, and this is the third. Uh, collection of anthologies that are set i was in the first one um which was right. forced in blood
0: yeah forced like- in blood goes through the universe it starts before it goes through comes after um resistance and defiance mm-hmm. are both locked into the war time frame and uh, so for resistance we had a <clears throat> interwoven <clears throat> timeline every event that happened was if it's happened during one of those stories was relevant to the story that was brought up. So there's four stories that are connecting text, and a bunch of episodic ones. It was a lot of work, which is very rewarding. Um, this came about, there were some additional stories we didn't get a chance to put in. There was a couple things we needed that didn't happen, but we got them done. <laughs> since we were doing another volume, I put the word out, uh, recruited some writers, some people already had some ideas, and uh, so we put together another one. So all these stories are in the correct order for the uh, for the timeline for the universe. They're not necessarily as connected and interspersed as the others. And they, each one is sequential
1: rather than interwoven. So defiant, Freehold Defiance stories take place after Freehold Resistance? No, same time, overlapping. They're overlapping, but yep. it's just during the UN assault on the... the yep. The world of Grania or Grania mm-hmm. or however the hell you say it, Grania. Yeah, Grania. Um, if, I, if I if I ever do another universe, I will pick something easier to pronounce. Yes, because <laughs> um, I've been interviewing you for years and I still can't say it right. Mm-hmm. So, um, explain what freehold is and why the hell the UN is so pissed off that it exists, so that we can. Have a, a baseline here.
0: Yeah, every, every time. <laughs> um, it's a very laissez faire uh, society. Uh, it was colonized, uh, wealthy in uh, operations and resources. And they got around to bureaucracy last. I mean, the first thing you got to do is stay alive. Then you got to start developing wealth and infrastructure. And then you worry about having a bureaucracy. And they, they largely have decided that's not something they want to put a lot of uh, resources and effort into. Uh, there's a couple of other systems I referenced that are heading
1: the same way, but not quite as prominently. <clears throat> and some uh, have some have even said it might be a libertarian world, although you sometimes shy from that.
0: Uh, yeah, it's uh, and it, it's certainly
1: got libertarian aspects.
0: Um, I'm more anarcho-capitalist, um, you know, but it's largely there is a government. It's a very limited government, uh, even more so than the U.S. was originally and for the time being that we're writing it staying that way so uh in the un well you know it's it's the old story that they're very successful and as we're seeing with certain um lockdown measures at present being successful makes you the enemy of the people who don't like the fact that you're successful yeah how, how dare you do well when the rest of us aren't and so they, they decide to invade. And so there's politicians running the war rather than doing the smart thing and simply locking down uh, logistics and transport. Uh, they decide they're going to actually physically invade the planet, which is about the stupidest thing you can do. But you know how many times has have governments done stupid things in you know war? <clears throat> and then it turns into a quagmire very quickly.
1: The UN is Earth's government but it also has a sort of suzerainty or, or uh, hegemony. Yes, that's uh, correct, yeah.
0: Over a bunch of uh, colony worlds. And uh, I referenced in Angel Eyes, and the Ikenberry story here covers how there's stuff going on elsewhere in the universe where uh, you know, the, the, the footprint is expanding <clears throat> because they rec- the, the government recognizes this is going to be an ongoing issue.
1: Let's talk about Kevin Eikenberry's story since it's the first one sure. in the um he and Kevin J. Anderson wrote Trouble mm-hmm. in Paradise, it's called. Um now this actually doesn't happen on Granja it happens on uh what's the name of this world? Uh, Meiji, right?
3: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Meiji.
1: And um it's it, we we open up with with Elwood. And the I mean the connection is that he is a blazer and uh where what is which one is the novel where we find out the hell that they train blazers in uh the weapon the weapon yeah which is what novel and which is uh so he is from Grania, and he's he's a special operations guy um what's he doing there and and what, what what's going on as we begin the story
3: well he's trying to get home he has a, a sick father and uh, has been out doing missions in the the, the rest of the, the I guess, the, the Federation, if you want to call it that. And then he's just, he just wants to get home. He's very driven to, to be able to go home and see his father because the last communications he had was his dad was dying. And uh, that's his motivation.
1: And why can't he just go?
3: Well, because he's a blazer. There's a war on him. <laughs> <laughs> a war and the, the UN are looking for guys like him, so uh it's he's trying been trying to get off the planet for quite some time and uh has had a couple of opportunities but has been forced by by circumstance just to give those up and in this particular case he has another circumstance where he decides uh to make a choice to not be on the the transport and uh rescue some kids in need essentially
1: yeah now that longing to get back to his dad is uh, he's a he's a nicely created character and we understand why he wants to get back. Which is, his dad's dying, but there's a connection there, right? I mean...
3: Oh, absolutely. Yeah, the, the the call for home for a soldier is something that's very, very poignant and very true. You know, when you're deployed someplace and you just, all you want to do is be home by your family, that's something you have to deal with every day.
1: How did he get stuck on Magie?
3: I don't think we ever really got into that. I think we it was just a matter that. of just saying that... He's been trying to to work his way home and just had not been able to get there.
0: And that's where he is all the time. Yeah, Which you yeah. know, which happens. Transports can you know, put you all kinds of places. Yeah. Absolutely.
1: And, and so, to describe the world a little bit. It's um, you describe it as as cloudy and clean, sort of. Is, is that?
3: <laughs> <laughs> well, most it's of the story itself,
1: Singaporean takes... in a way, maybe. I don't know.
3: Well, it, it takes place at night, and it, being that it's it, it's a Japanese focused world, Miji means uh, paradise in Japanese. So that's where the, the title comes from. Um, uh, I didn't know that. Being, and we, we kind of envisioned it that way. And then with talking about it being cloudy and clean, uh, my, my last experience in Japan was on Hokkaido several years ago for an army exercise. And the city of Sapporo is the cleanest city I've ever seen in my life, uh, to the point that we made a turn to go down a street that we thought was a street, and it was an alley. And the only way that I knew that it was an alley was a grease uh, trap behind a restaurant. It was immaculate. I just was never, I'd never seen anything like that. So uh, kind of driving on that was, was kind of the the scenery play with the story as we created it.
1: Mm-hmm. And, you
3: know, writing, writing with an up and coming writer like Kevin J. Anderson, you know, I just kind of gave him, gave him some things and he just thought to yeah, it took off.
1: So. Yeah. I know. And you had to go in and clean up his mouth. After oh yeah, totally. <laughs> This is a joke by the way. So oh, absolutely. No, I invited Kevin Anderson
0: and uh, he said yeah you know, sure he'd be happy to. He, he likes uh, you know exploring other universes and then he said that he'd like to have I can Marry healthy one no, absolutely. I mean you know that's a great combination. You know Kevin and Kevin.
3: And we had just finished writing a story for uh, Kevin or for Chris Kennedy's uh, Trouble in the Wind anthology. So it was just kind of the perfect timing where he was like, "Hey, you want to do this one too?" Yeah, why so this not? This is
1: your second effort with Kevin.
3: It is It's my cool. second one with Kevin.
1: Cool. Um, all right, so he makes this this run through a bunch of, uh, of shipping containers and he, he sees something. Um, mm-hmm. What does he see and how does it affect him? Uh, and, oh, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. I, I, I just want to set everything up without revealing too much, but at the same time, let's get let's get the, the emotional meat of this thing out there.
3: Sure. Um, He basically comes upon an enclosure that is full of kids that have been separated from parents that are under armed guard and it really kind of pisses him off and he doesn't fully understand what's going on. Um, He sees this happening and he's he's trying to talk to one of the one young boy that's come through the fence because they're they're getting out of the, the enclosure and trying to find extra food and water and he's trying to figure out what's going on and he sees this. And it's really kind of just infuriates him. And so as he's looking around, he ends up finding his way into uh, one of his hiding spaces. And there are a couple of locals that are, uh, that are there who are uh, kind of the manifestation of the resistance on the planet. And he basically learns from them that the UN has been separating kids from parents to force them to work. And uh, force them into basically uh, obeyance, essentially obedience. And <clears throat> again, that just kind of drives his thought process and continues to make him mad. And he just figures that he needs to do something to help this situation because nobody else can.
1: Yeah. And, and so you get children in danger and a man who is equipped to do something about it. Um, then we jump over to another point of view, which is, um, which, which is, which is, the is he the commanding officer of the world, or
3: somebody. he's essentially like the, like the district commander kind of guy? He's, he's in charge of UN forces there on the planet,
1: and his wife is heavily connected with a shipping uh, concern. Yes, and there's a yes. lot of uh, it's interesting because this in this story we point out a lot of the fact that the UN is utterly corrupt, which we get in Mike's stuff, but we see a real good example of it here. As well,
3: and it was kind of fun to to play that out with the corruption when with Sora being a shipping heiress, essentially. You know, her parents have had this massive corporation uh, that's been serving the, the entire uh, galaxy, essentially and to, to see her recognizing what's going on and making the, the, kind of putting the dots together and seeing just how bad things are. You know, she'd had an inkling before and she'd she been a little bit unsure of things, but as she starts to see, again, that the situation with the children and, and how things are developing, she also feels like she has to, has to take a stand. And for her, it's particularly dangerous because not only would she be turning on her husband and the local government, but she'd also be turning against her family, which is uh, a very uh, anti-traditional kind of stance.
1: Yeah, there is this sort of play of honor, you know, a definite Eastern sort of feel to her in that um, it's what she's doing by supporting this awful husband of hers is so dishonorable that she, she just can't. In a way she's, she is making an honorable choice. She just maybe can't explain it or won't be able to. Um, One other thing is uh, which has a big symbolism in the story. And I think was really cool was what is that thing with the necklace?
3: Um, I'll be honest, as I was writing that I wanted to find a connection that would show exactly what her feelings were towards her husband and how her relationship with him had changed uh, so that it becomes it's a symbolic device later on in the story, uh, as you know, and being able to to just kind of show that and show what she's been looking for in a husband and in her situation doesn't exactly match up with what she has now. And she's recognized that there is this, this massive change of this in this man over the course of time. And as he's grown to positions of authority, uh, he has certainly changed and him being unable or uh, without the, the patience to do the necklace for her uh, before they go to the big social event.
1: Cause that's the thing, right? It's the, he's supposed to, Put the thing on her whenever she wears it, right?
3: Exactly, and he is he is too busy and too self absorbed to do so. And so when it comes back in later in the story, that there's, it, it's I think it's a really cool moment that uh, it's done again, but from that from that other perspective.
1: Yeah. So explain one other thing before we leave it at that. Probably is what are they doing with these kids? What is the so the
3: sole motivation was to separate the kids from the parents to force them into, again, obedience, what we want you to do, what we're telling you to do. And I don't think we actually kind of really specified what the, the UN was trying to get the parents to do, except other than work, right? Uh, just being the, the blue-collar labor they're, force. They're
1: charging them exorbitant. They're, they're charging them ransoms. So some of them presumably it's could essentially, pay, most yes. of them can't.
3: Yeah. Exactly. It's, it's basically just forced labor in a sense to, to make them uh, have to pay this exorbitant fee to get their kids out. And it's, it's something that they're not, none of them are going to be able to do in any short amount of time. So it's, you've got these kids that are in this deplorable situation and, and horrible conditions. And then parents who just, they can't do anything to get the kids out. That becomes, again, that's kind of the swell of motivation for both Elwood and for Sora to take action.
1: Yeah. And it's all justified by, by UN speak.
0: This is like the end of the Roman Empire. The governors have a significant amount of power and not everything is getting reported back. You know, any organization, there's a certain amount of corruption and it doesn't mean everyone's corrupt, but there comes a point where it's endemic to the system. It's just, it's just rampant and there can be perfectly honorable, perfectly decent, perfectly honest people. And, you know, there are some of them in some of the stories, but... <clears throat> the, the graft and corruption underneath, you know, pollutes everything.
1: Yeah. Well, it's a very moving story, um, and and cool, and uh, and full of action, and and uh, and got some some really well conceived characters. Liked it a lot. Um, speaking of good people who um, who are in bad situations, let perhaps we can talk about Jamie's uh, <laughs> province of man uh which which is um tell us about sam and where he finds himself and and who he is
4: uh sam is um he's a high-spirited cherry lieutenant um he's just out of training he's a reservist yeah you know, he doesn't live and breathe for the un yeah he wants to be a lawyer <laughs> um and he gets brought into this mission by his mentor who uh, has known this commander forever. And he's like, oh, this is gonna be sweet. And then everything goes to hell.
1: Is, is this guy, Is <laughs> like a former professor or at law school or something like that, that his, his, his mentor?
4: Yes, um, he's like an adjunct professor Mm-hmm. basically something like that he's a full-time uh lawyer in you know in their area um adjunct professor and um and also a reservist
1: so how did they end up and i mean they were both in the reserve from uh this area from like tennessee right or yeah
4: um i i just uh sort of said hey this is where this unit is going yeah they were
1: and in so, the shoot and yeah so they've been you should really write what you know jamie instead of trying this crazy far out stuff um <laughs> so sounds like you might have done that uh, so all right so they're deployed on grania and they are in the in the shit man what is the situation they find themselves in uh, uh, this is they, all this is all UN troop point of view by the way right uh, yes
4: all of it um
1: who are the bad guys in a way but sam's not a bad guy uh, in a way
4: right it's um (laughs) i I wanted to make that a little bit more complicated (laughs) uh so they are they embed themselves on this mountainside uh you know a thousand miles away from jefferson and freak accident they are completely isolated
0: Oh, it wasn't a freak no, accident no it was a uh, it was a rebel um, attack that uh, did tremendous damage and yeah they're isolated yeah.
4: They're, um, yeah they're completely cut off no means of communication and isolation does funny things to people
2: and not to mention that hire is kind of preoccupied at the moment and so um, isn't exactly in a hurry to come find
0: another Small base story. blew up okay let's <laughs> another yeah. is covered in the uh, previous <laughs> anthology another base just got hit by an orbital strike
1: so you know yeah, they're on they're on that. their own <laughs> yeah yeah and they're and um his his wonderful mentor uh has a heart attack and dies <laughs> so he's just getting deeper and, and and he thought this would be sort of like i guess you know like a, a lot of Thought war it would be Kuwait and
4: it ended up being it, Afghanistan.
1: Yeah. Like, this is going to be a learning experience for me, a step in my career. Yes. And it turns out, like, you know, this in your suddenly life and death um, situation. So, mm-hmm. and and so describe sort of some of the things he, he sees and how he reacts at first. And, and, and I mean, this is all about, um, the moral choices that you have to make in such that that people in the military or just people have to make in such circumstances right yeah. um and what are some of those um, um,
4: at first it's he's really sort of getting acquainted with combat um he doesn't he he knows he knows what um the legalities are he knows uh
2: rules of engagement yeah
4: he knows the rules of engagement but he hasn't really internalized the reality of combat um so he's following the lead of uh, senior officers of the ncos um trusting that they're gonna square him away and you know, make sure he knows what he's doing but as time goes on he's like he starts to question and he says no this is not right people tell him shut up it's fine and uh, the uh they start heading they start butting heads more and more
1: yeah, I mean, it's As it's not just the, I mean, it's, somebody blows a guy in, way in front of him, um, for instance. Um, and and yes.
4: um yeah, that's really his breaking point. Of no, I'll, there is so much going on that's just wrong.
1: Yeah, why and is he's, why? how How is trying this... to figure out what to do? Yeah. So this is like one of the, you know, one of those really messed up, you know, a stereotypical way of thinking about it maybe is, and is, is, you know, it's like a really messed up platoon in a, in a Vietnam movie um, in which, you know, they've lost their moral compass because they just are not fighting for something that any of them thinks is worth it. Or is that? I mean, why why is the well, UN also- a problem here? I mean, why can't they just fight and beat these dang freeholders? Um. What what is the what is the poison within that? Um, I mean, that's that's the question of the story, of course. But I'm wondering what. How does, how does an army get corrupt like this? I mean, you guys should know you're in it. <laughs> it
4: this is, that's the kind of corruption that's bred into this these kinds of units.
0: Like, what, um, those are what the ma- people
4: that succeed.
0: <clears throat> what so, made this work, I got Jamie's story about the same time Justin Watson sent his in. Mm-hmm. And they're very similar bases with entirely different outcomes. One is a very honorable unit that's determined it's going to do everything properly regardless of the outcome. You know, they, they understand ultimately the war is fruitless, but they're going to be honorable and that's that's their stock in trade. Well, it seems the like other, a bad idea too though. <laughs> yeah, but then, you know, her unit starts off as uh, well whatever we got to do to make it work and you know I mean, they've seen some horrible things i mean you know yes they're acting like complete assholes but they've watched people be tortured by the enemy they've seen things up they realize their main base has just been wiped off the map you know they're not reacting well you know they, they might have come in with the same intention and well, what we're going to be you know good and honorable and then there's nothing about it that is <clears throat> so the, the, it's, it's, a, it's a great one-two punch
1: between the two stories
4: they're low on supplies they're they're in survival mode is this this is the one
1: where they were like given a clip each yeah it's like
4: why they were supposed to be resupplied and then the base got wiped out
0: yeah when i was um i I spent some time in kuwait and we had a c-141 landing every 10 minutes during the day and then at night they reconfigured the flight line and a c-130 took off in theater about every 10 minutes as, as soon as the uh flight line and air path was clear another one lifted um there was a sandstorm they flew anyway and accepted engine damage i've got a unit commendation medal because we maintained i think 98 percent operational achievement in a war zone during sandstorms and um you know if an aircraft had problems we just unloaded it the, the cargo units unloaded it reloaded another one because everything on those aircraft was fuel ammunition, water, and food for the guys in Afghanistan. You know, It had to keep going. It could not stop. <clears throat> as soon as one of those planes missed, somebody was going to be short of supplies. And if it was two or three in a row, it was going to be a problem. It, the logistics is what makes it work. So these guys are in the ass end of nowhere. <clears throat> the base is gone. They have nothing coming in. They're already outnumbered by the rebels. They're scavenging, and they're you know, reverting. They're becoming feral.
1: <clears throat> yeah they just have to and and their their moral uh any moral guy they have has been cut
2: off the guy died that could actually yeah. that had a he conscience
4: <laughs> cricket
2: yeah well, it was interesting because what she kind of did was expose like the whole idea of um toxic leadership and toxic unit cultures so mm-hmm. what you end up seeing is like a unit that looked good on the surface but underneath that there was a lot going on which you yeah. know it's kind of the extremes of the experience in the military you're in great units with great people and then everybody has that assignment where where you're sitting there going you witness the exact opposite of the way things are supposed to be and how they're supposed to work so she she, uh, I mean I got of course I get to read it as she's working on it you know and take a few passes at it like we did we work on each other's stuff. And it's sitting there going, holy smoke, you're really getting at some of this stuff. Yeah. And, um, you know, quite a bit of research went into it, too. So, you mentioned Vietnam. So, hey, you read up on My Lai, You read up on um, uh, basically uh, insurgent yes. wars in um, Africa and Ireland and uh, the Balkans as well that goes on. You, you watch documentaries like Carindal or uh, Restrepo were, were good influences. And, you um, I, you know, it's, uh, stuff like that. And it just all, you know, so watching her pull that all together, it was like, this is going to be a powerful and impactful story when it's yeah.
1: done. Well, it <laughs> an is. And, and it's kind of a, uh, a horror story for Sam. He feels mm-hmm. very, oh, yes. very sorry Absolutely. for the guy. That's, that's an interesting real world bit that, um, mm-hmm. I realized
0: at the time, and it's still, it's still relevant for this. Um, the, uh, all the incidents at Abu Ghraib prison, um, <clears throat> Colonel Steve Boyer, um, a um, JAG officer, was supposed to deploy over there, but he was U.S. Congressman, and Congress would not let him go. Now, if there had been a Colonel Lawyer Congressman in charge of that prison, do you think half of that stuff would have happened? But he wasn't, and someone else was there, and it's like, well, well, you know, as long as it's quiet, and you know, and then it rapidly got out of hand, <clears throat> you know, just bit
1: by bit. Yeah. You just have to have one person that says, this is bullshit. Stop. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. if you don't, you <laughs> that,
0: sometimes that's all it takes. Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah. Well, I'm in a position
0: uh, to make it stick.
1: It's a great story um, and uh, a, a very nice uh, debut, Jamie. That was part one of a two-part round table discussion of freehold defiance. Part two will be available next time on the podcast. Here is another entry in David Weber's Honor Harrington series masterpiece, Uncompromising Honor. Honor keeps her promise. The Solarian League. For hundreds of years, they have borne the banner of human civilization. But the bureaucratic Mandarins who rule today's league are corrupt and looking for scapegoats. They've decided the upstart Star Kingdom of Manticore must be annihilated. Uncompromising courage. Honor Harrington has won the Star Kingdom's uniform for half a century. Very few know war the way Honor Harrington does. So far, hers has been a voice of caution. But now the Mandarins have committed atrocities such as the galaxy has not known in a thousand years. They have finally killed too many of the people Honor Harrington loves uncompromising vengeance now honor harrington is coming for the solarian league and hell is riding in her wake and now david weber's uncompromising honor
5: sol system solarian league the screaming alarm yanked rear admiral bethany Ningju out of a deep sleep She bolted upright in her bunk, reaching for the bedside comm key before her eyes were fully open. Battle stations, battle stations. The strident voice filled every compartment, melding with the alarm. All hands, battle stations. This is not a drill. Battle stations, battle sta- An icicle went through Ningju and the voice cut off, in her sleeping cabin at least, as her hand came down on the comm key and overrode the speakers. Ningju, she said, swinging her feet to the deck. Talk to me. Commander Rongwala, ma'am. The voice on the other end was flat as hard as an iron bar. If it hadn't identified itself, Ningju would never have recognized Daiichi Rongwala, SLNS Andromeda's executive officer. We're picking up a major hyper footprint, ma'am. It's right on top of us. "Define right on top," she snapped. "Under 8 million kilometers, ma'am." Ningju went white. Eight million kilometers was less than 27 light seconds. How big is it? She demanded. So far, we've got over 300 point sources, ma'am. Nanju's mind froze. 300 point sources? That was, that was, that was insane. Her entire squadron consisted of only eight Mikasa-class heavy cruisers. But what in God's name could? Her heart seemed to stop. There was only one place that many ships could have come from. And they could be here for only one purpose. Get on the comm, raise them now. Your grace, we have what looked like eight Sally heavy cruisers at 7.8 million kilometers, Captain Rafe Cardona said, closing velocity about 35,000 KPS. Not sure from their vectors what they're doing out here, but we're right on top of them. They've just brought up their sidewalls. I see them, Rafe, Honor Alexander Harrington replied. She gazed down into the tactical plot, never raising her eyes to look at Cardonis on her command chair comm display, and her flag captain bit his lip. He'd seen her like this, or almost like this, once before, the night before her duel with Pavel Young. But no, he thought, she hadn't been like this even then. She'd been focused, lethal, determined, prepared to pay the price of sacrificing her entire career to avenge the death of the man she'd loved, but she'd still been her still been Honor Harrington. Today, she was a stranger, a terrifying stranger. Shall I challenge them, ma'am? Lieutenant Commander Brantley asked from communications. No, she said flatly, and looked up from the plot at last. Eyes like frozen brown flint met Cardona's on the display. Take them out, she said. Commander Gregoire Koenig exploded from the lift car onto Andromeda's command deck, He hadn't bothered with a skin suit. In fact, he was shoeless and wore only trousers and a t-shirt. But Daiichi Rongwala leapt out of the command chair at the center of the bridge with enormous relief. Captain on the bridge, the quartermaster of the watch barked. As you were, everyone, Koenig snapped. He flung himself into the vacated command chair and spun it to face his tactical officer. Status? Still more of them coming over the wall, sir. Lieutenant Commander Paulson's voice quavered. We're up to almost 500 now. Koenig blanched. Crew Ron 572 was supposed to be conducting a simple training maneuver in the safest star system in the entire League. None of its units had ever imagined anything like this in their worst dreams. The Admiral's on the way to the flag bridge, sir, Rangwala told him, should be there by now. Koenig jerked a choppy nod. As soon as Ningju reached her station, they'd have to miss a launch. Ivan Paulson said suddenly, multiple missile launches. An icy fist punched Gregoire Koenig in the center of his chest. His eyes sped to the master plot, and every drop of blood drained out of his face as dozens of missile icons blazed suddenly upon it. The time of flight number flashed its crimson warning, and there was no time to even think about escaping them. Andromeda's hypergenerator was completely powered down, and at those missiles' acceleration, they would reach his ship in barely 90 seconds. Launching countermissiles! Paulson said, and Andromeda quivered as her launcher spat a pitiful salvo of CMs at that torrent of destruction. Get them on the comm, Koenig said. Tell them we surrender. We're trying to raise them, sir, his comm officer said. We haven't gotten through yet. Ma'am, Mercedes Brigham said very quietly in Honor's ear. They can't hurt us. Honor said nothing. She simply watched the missiles track across the plot, and Nimitz flattened his ears and bared his fangs from the back of her command chair. Strike the wedge, Bethany Ningju barked from Andromeda's flag bridge. All units, strike your wedges now. Rafe Cardonis drew a deep breath of relief as the Sali cruiser's wedges disappeared in the universal FTL signal of surrender. His eyes darted back to his comm, and Honor Alexander Harrington didn't say a word. They're still coming, sir. Lieutenant Commander Paulson said. I see it, Yvonne, Commander Koenig replied, and a strange sense of something very like calm seemed to flow through him. Not relief, just acceptance. The knowledge that every man and woman of his crew was about to die, and there was absolutely nothing he could do about it. They must be even more pissed off by Fabius than we'd thought, a corner of his mind reflected. But why? We only hit military targets. Sure, nobody on the ones we hit had time to evacuate, but it's not like we violated the Eridani Edict the way they did in Mesa. Your Grace, they've surrendered, Mercedes Brigham said, and Honor looked at her. Her expression never changed, but there was something almost like puzzlement in those flinty eyes, as if she wondered what that had to do with anything. Your Grace, they've struck their wedges. She said nothing, only looked at her chief of staff with those puzzled eyes, and Brigham reached out. She gripped her admiral's shoulders, actually shook her in her command chair. Ma'am, Honor, they've surrendered. Their eyes locked, and then suddenly Honor shivered. She closed her eyes, her nostrils flared, and her hands tightened like talons on the armrests of her command chair. Yes, they have Damn them. The knife-edged words were so soft, only Brigham could possibly have heard them. Then her eyes opened again. Abort the engagement, Captain Cardonis, she said clearly, coldly, while Nimitz snarled protest behind her. The time to attack range readout flashed downward, and every eye on Andromeda's bridge was glued to it. Forty seconds. Thirty-five. Thirty. No one spoke. There was nothing to say, no further orders to give the tide of destruction came in ludicrously slowly for a missile engagement because the range was too short for it to reach anything like maximum velocity. Individual missiles, even Manticorin missiles, would be easy meat for the point defense clusters when they came into range. But there were over 500 missiles in that salvo. If every single cluster Crewron 572 could bring to bear stopped two of them, 400 would still get through. And without even sidewalls to protect them. 20 seconds. 15, Ten. Gregoire Koenig drew a deep breath, the last he would ever draw, and held it as his ship's death roared down upon him. And then, suddenly, every single one of those missiles swerved away from its target, arced wide of the squadron, and vanished in a holocaust of self-destruct commands. Koenig wouldn't have believed the silence on his bridge could grow even more intense. He would have been wrong. That silence lingered for ten crackling seconds. Then his comm officer cleared his throat. Sir, we have an incoming transmission. Put it up, Koenig said. Yes, sir. The commander leaned back in his chair, vaguely aware his hands were trembling, and a woman in the black and gold of the Royal Manticoran Navy appeared on the Mastercom display. I am Admiral Harrington, Royal Manticoran Navy, she said. And something deep inside Gregor Koenig shrank from that soprano scalpel. I accept your surrender in the name of the Grand Alliance. Be aware that any resistance to my boarding parties will be met with instant lethal force, and that my acceptance of your surrender is contingent upon the surrender of your intact databases. If those databases are not intact, or if any resistance is offered to my boarding parties by any individual... I will regard all of your personnel as having violated the terms of your surrender and act accordingly. She smiled, and somehow it was the most frightening smile Koenig had ever seen. You won't like it if that happens, she said very, very softly. But I will.
1: That was another entry in the complete audiobook serialization of Uncompromising Honor by David Weber. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. And a psychic leopard, a spaceship forged of Damascus steel just because we can, and a quiver of lightning rods that store the stuff and shoot it back out, plus thanks and praise to Kevin Atkinberry, Christopher Denote, Jamie DeNote, Philip Wolrab, and Michael Z. Williamson, editor and authors of Freehold Defiance. <laughs> Please join us next time here at the Hammering Heart of Science Fiction and Fantasy and keep reaching for the stars.